Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISO and security engineers act fast, prevent burnout, and implement DevSecOps at the speed of cloud. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. This is your host, Francesco, and today we have the pleasure and the honor to have Chris Russell on the podcast. We've been interacting a little bit on Twitter, and uh, he's well known for his views as well as his training that we're going to touch on the podcast as well. But before we dive in in any kind of fitness rant and fitness <laughs> thread, uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, so again, Chris Russell. I'm the CISO at T-Zero Group. I have a background in managed detection response. And before that, I was in the military. I was in the intelligence field, actually, as a human intelligence collector. And worked in Intel for you know 10 plus years which is a really exciting and kind of fun job. But towards the end, Intel gets a little bit political, the higher up you get. And I just, that wasn't really the, the life I wanted to live. So I, you know, decided, okay, it's time to transition out. But towards the end, a lot of what I was doing was I was recruiting people to get access to networks. Like that was the main thing. I was a human collector, but everything we wanted was on a network or, in, you know, or data or something like that. So it was training on people on installing key loggers or backdoors or rats or whatever it was we were, or just going in and pulling information. And so, you know, in my head, I'm thinking like, this is like so easy and we literally never get caught that cybersecurity is just abysmal and that maybe this, <laughs> would, maybe this would be a good field to get into, you know, once I'm done with Intel, because it, we need to do some work here and working around classified systems, especially being deployed around the world. You know, I had to set up secure local networks. I had to set up our, you know, reporting mechanisms uh, in remote locations. So we're, I was used to setting up a secure LAN and having access control and locking down devices by MAC address and password stuff for certain databases and role-based access control and least privilege. All these things in Intel are just very ingrained in you. So Kind of understanding those and, and some of the networking fundamentals, you know, going into cybersecurity wasn't a huge leap. I mean, obviously, I had to do a lot of, you know, lab work and training, and I, I went back to school, continuing to go back to school. But the fundamentals and the concepts behind it, I think, are kind of ingrained in most people that have been around classified information in any way for long periods of time. So, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in cybersecurity from uh, starting off in Intel. Right. And how did you find the transition from the military background? Like the tool you mentioned that you were kind of trained on like secure by default and operationalized for military security concept already. But has it been a massive leap or has it been just a natural transition for you? So there was obviously a bunch of differences between working with the military and working in the corporate environment you know, military and the Department of Defense and some of the civilian agencies, you know, everything's very, I'm trying to think of the right word, very critical. You know, it's like 
getting the right information is very critical. Being accurate is very critical. So, cause you know, at the ultimately there's people's lives and health and, and things are actually at stake with this information. Whereas you move to the corporate world and it's a lot more bureaucracy and a little bit more slow paced. And it's, you know, I'm not saying it's not important work, but it, no one's actually going to shoot at you if you get it wrong. And <laughs> no one's trying to, you know, kidnap you while you're trying to meet a source. It's, 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 you know, just basic <laughs> corporate. Me, it was a lot easier. <laughs> to, it's like, oh, I get to do easier stuff and it's way less stressful. But once you're in the corporate world for a while, you kind of forget all that whole previous life and you start to get back and green in the normal stresses of, oh, I've got an audit or, oh, it's time to do access control reviews again. And you, I, I start to get that stress build up and I remind myself, well, you know what? 10 years ago, my, a stressful day was a lot worse. So I got to come it in perspective and relax a little bit. Nice. So different, different level of stress, more corporate stress rather than... But but I would say one of the reasons why I think a lot of people that are in law enforcement, military, secret service, a bunch of different disciplines, they do well in cybersecurity because they learn to be calm in moments of like disaster. So even it, so incident response, even though I wasn't particularly responsible for response, I was in charge of engineering and then engineering back around our incident response uh, tooling and one of my jobs. Being around that, it wasn't this stressful thing for me. Everyone else is an incident. It, they kind of get, you know, they kind of get stressed out. They kind of get fight or flight. And I'm just thinking like, we just, we just got to do step A. We've got a playbook. So what's step A? What's the next thing we got to do to start fixing this? And then we do that. Okay. What's step B? And it, and to me, you know, I found that having that kind of calm, kind of under pressure mentality really helped my team and people I work with kind of feed off that and go, okay, you know what? It's going to be okay. We don't need to freak out. In the can the case of main detection response, if there's a you know if there is an incident and and it's a customer, you know no one wants to tell them bad news, but I'm the guy that goes in and, and explains exactly what it is, what we got to do, and you know as long as you've got a plan and you and you've got all your bases covered, people are pretty reasonable and they don't bite your head off like everyone assumes. So it's one of those things where I think people that have been through high stress environments and situations, when it comes to incident response and normal cybersecurity kind of daily stresses. You, you start, you know, you, you do see it with some perspective and you go, you know what, I don't need to freak out about this. I need to fix it because if I do fix it, then it's, then it's time to freak out. But I can just go and fix this and we'll be okay. Okay. So fundamentally crisis management or, or keeping the calm and keeping a communication line without being in panic or showing weakness or throwing kind of creeping out with with information yeah because people get emotional and they they maybe start second guessing what they're supposed to do and and i'm someone who's like okay i've been through some bad situations but if i followed the steps that i knew i was supposed to do i always got out of it and and in some cases you know some cases you have a playbook some cases there's written down in some cases you have to figure out what it is but you still figure out what that next step is and you just say okay this is all we're going to focus on right now let's not worry about the, the 30 other steps after that let's just worry about step a and get that done and you get kind of everyone kind of focused on their their different steps and then before you know it you're just you have it fixed and then you can go around and figure out whose fault it is and what happened and but solving it's the most important part and like i said people who have been in stressful situations kind of tend to do that first and then worry about the the dynamics later and has anything maybe that you learn from or from military background or, or things where you were trained on played against you? Is there things that have played against me from my background? Like stopped you or mentality that you were used to that doesn't apply more in the corporate world? Like, Yeah, 
the opposite aspect of like what has kind of aha moment or stop you it's like oh that's not normal <laughs> so as a human intelligence collector i'm really big on people telling the truth because my job to figure out are people telling me the truth or not whether it was source operations or interrogations the whole goal is to get the truth not just get someone to tell you what you want to hear but actual truth so i'm, I'm someone that's very focused on okay what's the actual truth and and when you go into the corporate world and there's a lot of kind of white lies and kind of you come into a new organization and you're like, well, when was your last audit? And they're like, oh, it was like last year. And you go and look at it and you're like, well, this wasn't really an audit. And, and or, <laughs> or what, what's our vulnerability management system like? And like, oh, it's great. And you look at it. It's just, you know, and so you, you, you kind of get used to some of the kind of white lies and, and, it, and it takes you a minute to remember that. Again, it's not people being maybe downright deceitful, but people, you know, in the business world, painting things in a better picture, which to me is not good because I would rather know the actual truth so we can fix it. If you're going to tell me everything's okay and I believe you and it's not okay, then I think we have problems. I'd rather just hear, no, things aren't okay. We just did this access review. It turns out there's a bunch of privileges that have been being used that shouldn't have been. I would just rather hear that from my people then, oh, no, everything's fine. But that's kind of the norm. People are used to not wanting to bring up bad news and not wanting to be the messenger of bad news. So I spent a lot of time telling my people, look, you can tell me anything. You can tell me I'm wrong. I'm doing something wrong. You can tell me we've been breached right now that we've lost. I mean, just tell me it because it's. I, I just want to know so we can fix it. You know, I'm not going to ever yell at you or be upset with you because you told me the truth, especially if, if something that's serious. And that's something that in the business world, I just to be frankly honest, everyone kind of tries to paint everything in a lighter picture. And I just I don't like it. I would rather just tell me straight up if my if my baby's ugly, my baby's ugly. If you don't like my the way my sim rules work, <laughs> tell me. I, I don't need you know, I don't need sunshine and roses. I need like ground truth. <laughs> right. And yeah, that that's just a little bit of a difficult approach in, in, in corporate. Have you found risk management and risk management approach help you or your ability to evaluate risk very quickly help you or maybe being a drawback? I think it I think it has helped because again in human we would do risk vulnerability assessments. Of, of site locations and places. So I got the, I got this kind of mentality of like, okay, let's go in and what is the most probable ways people are going to try and go into a building or go into a classified area? And, you know, every, this isn't a secret. Social engineering is very effective. No one's going to try and blow a hole through the wall at, at, you know, Fort Knox if you can walk up with a clipboard and say the right things and be, and be, and be shoveled around like you're a maintenance guy. So, you know, social engineering is a real legitimate thing and, and kind of dealing with that in the military side and then seeing how it's very common in the in the in the, the corporate and cyber world. It, I kind of saw like a lot of the different risks that I was used to evaluating for an up, you know, I'd have to plan for an operation like, hey, I got to go into Baghdad. I got to talk to a source. What's my risks on the route? What's my risk coming back? What are my risks on the site? This thinking about that holistic, it was a very, very normal thing for me. And so I take, you know, doing that with work is this is, is very much the same. Like, oh, we're going to roll out a new product. What are the what are the risks while we roll it out? What are the risks when we, you know, when we set it up? What are the risks if we don't configure it right? What are the, you know, just thinking about that and doing some gap analysis and threat assessments is almost second nature now. So it's something that I, you know, I, I kind of probably dwell too much on every time we're doing something. I'm thinking like, okay, what are all the things I need to think about that might happen? But then you, but then you also think like it's also not super realistic that an APT is going to come after my private Gmail account. 
So, you know, I may think about it maybe as a possibility, but it's gonna be really low on it. So I'm not going to put, I'm not going to worry as much about MFA on my throwaway Gmail account as much as my corporate account. You know, a lot of people talk about MFA and social media. I'm one of those people that like, if someone stole my social media, it would suck, but it's not going to be the end of the world, really. There's really nothing on it. You're going to get a bunch of my workout videos. Congratulations. I'll just make more. <laughs> I, don't, I don't ever go back and look at them. Like, not the end of the world. But that's my own private, you know, risk, you know, analysis situation is I would rather just go on Twitter. I mean, I actually do have MFA set up, but you know, some other things I just, I don't necessarily think you need it for, for, you know, if you're willing to lose it, because, you know, w- once you get into a world where you're constantly MFAing into everything that doesn't even matter, I feel like you start kind of going through the motions. You're not really focusing. That's how you can get tricked into, you know, allowing someone in your MFA because you're hitting approve because you're so used to just approving things all the time as you're working. So I think there's a dichotomy there. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant point. And we got, more some uh, recently and you know these podcasts will come out a little bit later than what we record but a lot of scare tactic around device being hacked with just a single cable or the fbi alerting that you know be aware of that uh we had our own drama here in the uk where people were were scared about you know having access to laptops or laptop being left unattended unattended on a train right (laughs) <laughs> yes and uh, my friend daniel has has raved about it and i agree with daniel is it good to leave your laptop unattended on a train no it's not great but is it likely that a hacker is going to be right there waiting for you to do something with it also not likely so i mean there's just a, a give and take I, I think in uh especially in social media when it comes to cybersec and infosec people like to have really strong opinions about all the opsec you could have and it's like okay this is really cool and people take it to a really high degree but, you know, once you've worked for the government and you've seen the level of OPSEC we have for things that are really important, you'd probably lower your own a little bit because, you know, we just saw, you know, a 21-year-old airman from the International Guard was dropping TS secrets on Discord. And people are shocked. How is this even possible? People have no idea at, at the government level, at the military level, at the even the intelligence agencies levels. The level of OPSEC is not unreasonable. It has to be functional for all the people. The data can't be stored away where no one can see it. It can't be unusable. It's got to be accessible. And so, you know, when, when people that aren't in that world, they're talking about, well, I have an anonymous Twitter account and, you, you know, I don't post pictures and I don't post things where you can find me. It's like, that's cool, but like no one's looking for you. So you're really doing a lot of work for nothing. Right. And I think that's that's a good point. People don't realize that military and government are organization like anybody else, just with a risk and impact level that is much higher but we had data breach and leads and maybe they're intentional maybe they're not intentional yeah. but uh <laughs> who knows that that's a that's a different topic but back on back on that topic i think mfa uh, we talked offline a little bit on on identities and how identity is possibly fundamentally broken or, or we've been focusing a lot on on the podcast and on on our socials on risk-based vulnerability management, a lot of vulnerability application security is up, down, left, and right with this bomb and the, the recent regulation that the US government has has issued. Are we missing one of the fundamental part of the application that we're building? Yeah, I did really want to talk about that because I've been talking with a bunch of my colleagues lately about this. Uh, I've been talking, you know, I started with Nathaniel when I, he went to the Gartner Summit. Uh, he's with Mesh who I, I help advise, you know, he was, we, we were talking about how identity and context is just missing these days. And, and what I mean by that is, 
we may get logs and we may get alerts around basic authentication and, and, and from tokens, users, hosts, whatever, but we're not getting enough context to make good decisions on if these are compromised, if they're legitimate, if they're not. And people say, yeah, we do. We have SIMs. But the reality is that SIMs are disparate log sources with different key value pairs that don't follow the same timelines. You may get a Windows Defender alert, and then 15 minutes later, 15 minutes later, when the Cloudflare has finally come in, because there's millions of them, they're just not going to line up in the same five-minute window. You can't have these real-time searches running all the time, even if you have the most, the biggest Splunk instance in the world with all the all the CPU and RAM and whatever you need. You can't have a thousand concurrent searches just running. You can you only have a finite amount, and they can only be in a certain window. And we're just not we just have really failed at getting identity right in a way where we actually know uh, normal behavior and differentiate it from abnormal behavior in a way that lines up with the rest of the data. You know, So it's one thing to have authentication logs, that's great, but you don't get the authentication logs along with all the other SaaS apps. And like, so you, let's say you're SSOing to GCP and you're SSOing and all these other things, you may get a login here or there, but you're not getting that and the data from those tools and the getting that correlated to see if that makes sense. And so the reason why I think we've got identity wrong is that we, we've got it built in a way where it doesn't really work well with other tools and other tools aren't necessarily pulling it in to match with their data in a way that I think you know, really is effective. And so we can't really decide or we can't really tell well when a user's credentials are compromised. We can't tell really well when a token's been stolen in a man in the middle, when evil to, you know, took a token and is just, you know, stealing your session. And in the logs, you'll see like a failed, a pass, a failed. You can maybe have some alerts around that, but you could also, that could be a million false positives of people just fail and pass on basic authentication. So I feel like, you know, products, vendors, whoever, you know, all these different people need to start thinking about, we need to really get identity pulled out. We need to make it contextualized. We need to like feed it into these tools in a way that's, that's more integrated better than we did with Sims. And 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 I, I Sims are kind of going away in a way. They're still there, but you know, people are kind of moving more to this XDR and some of these other service security mesh. Eric. Yeah. Service security, like for example, service security mesh architecture is a good example where this can work. It's very new. People don't really know exactly what it is, but it's an area where you can take this, you know, your inventory, you can take your identity, you can take all these other different pieces and actually put them together with all the API clouds in the cloud, plus API clouds to all the tools that are working with your cloud and actually get a comprehensive view of how your users interacting with all that. So I'll give you an example. I've got people, let's say I've got GCP, I've got GitLab, I've got Docker containers, I've got all these things in my pipeline. I don't see all that together. I see different alerts in GCP for, for authentication. I see Lacework showing me stuff in GCP, but I don't see the, the, the GitLab stuff where they SSO'd over and connected the two. And then the guy who pushed the merge request came from here and, and pushed it to this different project. None of that's all tied together in a way where I feel like it's coherent and, and effective in real time. And, and I think, again, the piece is missing is people aren't pulling in the identity piece and the contextual piece around it enough to enrich all the other things around it. Like I said, cybersecurity mesh architecture is one area where I think they're going to start to do this and do it very well, but it's not a huge field. There's not many people in it yet. And I don't know people have seen the value of it because people are thinking this is just another SIM. This is just another IDP. This is just an ITDR slash DLP. I mean, it's many things, but at the very the basic fundamental level, I think what it's doing well is, is taking identity. It's adding the context we need a little bit better 
And I, I think it's just an important thing we need to start talking about because we're the, the longer we don't address this and we start building tools on top of identity on top of it, we're just going to keep having the same problem of, of the same password credentials being stolen and <laughs> people going right in the front door. You know, they don't need a zero. You can just go right in with the credentials and we have, no, you know, or our service accounts. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Phoenix platform connects to your repositories, scanners, and cloud, correlates all the information, and provides you with a prioritized list of vulnerabilities that need to be addressed first. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISOs and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at phoenix.security. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. And that, that's actually a very good point. Sometimes we worry too much about a zero day, but an all day or a zero day is really expensive to, to use and burn because once you burn it, you know, it's out in the wild, people will start detecting, triggering, you burn it, it's really expensive. While stolen token or stolen authentication or stolen past the hash or whatever you want to call it, it's really cheap. You know, it, it might be in some data breach. It, might, it is orchestratable in, in, in at scale. And that's where attackers have been focusing, I think, from my perception, more on stealing tokens from CICD, stealing tokens from uh, specific users. You know, MFA has helped so, so much. But as you rightfully said, when everything is MFA, then you lose the perception of what's legit and what's not legit. Like, if you keep on receiving MFA, Portal and authentication requests, you're not going to think twice and you're just going to input it. And there might be a malicious MFA. And once you're there, you're there. Read it as Uber. <laughs> yeah. the and, case. and like we said earlier, social engineering is still the most effective means, maybe not the most effective in all cases, but it's still a very effective means of getting someone to, to give up their credentials and, and other pieces about them that allow people to go into an environment purporting to be them and people just are none the wiser. And I have a, because of my background, I take to, I take it a step further where I've been doing research on ransomware groups. And I think it's going to be, I don't think it's gonna be a huge trend, but it's gonna be something where they're going to start trying to recruit people with placement access because this is, they're so commoditized. They've built this really great market for ransomware. It's very lucrative. In fact, Conti group was as, Revenue and margin wise was better than the top EDR company in the world. They're making 100, $180 million a year with $6 million in expenses. You try and beat that as an EDR company revenue, you're just not going to. So it's a very effective model. And if their phishing campaigns don't work, what are they just going to give up? They're just going to throw in the towel and be like, ah, they have phishing tools that stop us. No, they're going to recruit people. They're going to start. And they have. I've, I've looked up uh, and I've listened to a couple of interviews where people will email people in the company just and try, hey, if you let us get in or you give us your credentials, we'll give you like half the ransom. And this is very rudimentary. This isn't super and There was ransomware as a service as well. Like you could oh, yeah. register in a portal and say, like, if you ransom your own organization, we give you a piece of it. Yes, yes, yes. And so I feel like this other piece especially if we treat developers like mercenaries and, and we continue to be in this like distributed world where technical people are all around the world and we've never even really met them. You think they're really loyal to us if someone's going to offer them a couple million dollars to install a small backdoor into 
some code or just get them onto an SMH, SMH onto a box or these are not unreasonable things and they're super easy. And again, we don't have good tools to pick up on that because this is all happening outside of the network. You know, if someone's going to recruit Bob from, from the IT team, they're probably, you know, they're probably going to send it to them through like LinkedIn or some other social media or whatever. They may send it to their corporate email. I doubt it. But it's just going to be in a non-visible way. If Bob likes to do it and give us credentials or do whatever. You're not going to see it because Bob's allowed to put things on the network. Bob's allowed to make configuration changes. Bob's allowed to do all these things. The only way you're going to know it's a difference is if you've got really good contextual. And I'm not going to say UBA because it's it's not like that. We need some contextual and maybe a little bit of anomaly detection to say, like, you know what? Bob's never made a firewall change this time from this place or whatever. And this firewall change is weird. You know, like we don't have anything that does that. You know, we don't have anything that goes on Palo Alto and says, hey, someone just made a configuration change to any, any, you know, you had a zero trust set up. Like it's very noisy. It's very noisy. You need to tweak it uh, if your workforce change consistent. It was the whole discussion around behavioral based analysis for IDP and, and so on versus, you know, the traditional approach and the one that is very effective, but very noisy could be the behavioral, behavioral approach. Because as soon as you change the norm, is that an attack or is that not an attack? And then you become almost blind to that but identity originally in the in the identity forum has been formulated in that exact way so that enable behavioral changes and the division between what you can do your permission from who you are it's just complicated to think in that way because you think an organization you might have like rights across the board right across like several identity store and don't get me even started on on coding this inside application because then you need to you need to take into account all the possible scenarios. But what about this? Instead of having a Palo Alto alert that goes to some sim that says Bobby to change, and then someone reviews it to see if it's good or not, what if you had an alert from some sort of like mesh architecture tool that says, "Hey, a previously unexposed asset is now open to the internet, and this is who made that change." Which alert would you look at immediately and go, oh, wait a minute, all of a sudden we have a newly exposed asset to the internet and it was done by this change. You really think, okay, like either Bob made a mistake or Bob made a big mistake, but you, you'd probably remediate it, you'd investigate, you'd do all these things. But if you just got an alert that Bob made a change and it, and it, and a Palo Alto, no idea, idea if it's, it might know what, if it's untrusted or trusted zone. So maybe that's in it, but it's not going to highlight the fact that, Hey, you've got an internet facing asset. Now this is open to the world now. Like, like that needs to be highlighted and like very upfront. And I think that's where, again, mess security identifying the attack circus first, kind of bringing that like, Hey, something really sensitive is now internet facing it's vulnerable. And these are the users involved in it. Like seeing it in that order, I think, makes it much easier to prioritize and then possibly even uh, filter out the false positives. I, I guess so. But if you take it into a very dynamic like DevSecOps world or DevOps world where millions of things appear and disappear in a very ephemeral way, it's very difficult even to trace who deployed which assets to where, like what, what was the CICD that, that deployed that particular asset? Like even tracing who owns the asset is insane. <laughs> yeah, you go you go look at the logs and it says GitLab user did it. And you're like, ah, oh, no, come on. It wasn't GitLab yeah. user. And then who you need it? to pivot on the hash and then the hash, you need to look at the commit and then in Git, it's insanely impossible. And, and the best way of seeing is like, if you force everybody to actually 
use stocks in the Terraform or Cloudform. So at least you have some form of level of ownership. But And that's just one of the problems, like just on the assets. Yeah, and that's exactly why I think we need to start getting that identity pulled out, correlate a little bit better, kind of bring it, bubble it up to the surface so we start seeing that a little bit more. But so you but you're seeing the service mesh picking up or is is, is one of our dream? I think I think I think we're gonna see more at a mesh. I think it's something that uh, it takes quite a bit of time to create all the different integrations. You know, obviously all these different tools that are providing information kind of speak different languages. So you have to normalize that. But once we're kind of done with that, or once we start doing it in a way where it's, you know, we we have some sort of common language, some, you know, identity query, you know, language or whatnot, I think it'll make it a bit easier. And I think, you know, it's just a matter of time before we get there. Brilliant. And I want to touch quickly on maybe how identity then gets insanely complicated in, in blockchain and uh, the whole digital world, because that's more the world that you live in. I think it's not talked a lot. And with the new, I mean, the UK is rolling out digital currency or potentially rolling out digital currency. The US is thinking as well. You know, we had Bitcoin, we had all the rest of digital currency. How complicated is to maintain a digital identity or a key? <laughs> so identity is a big problem for blockchain, in my opinion. And the reason why, and this is, again, this is my opinion. So there will probably be many dissenting opinions, but the original image and the visual dream of blockchain was this very anonymous, decentralized, fair, you know, just because you've got an important name, you don't get any more rights than anyone else in this kind of little ecosystem. So it had this very pure, very, I would say, normally good intent of let's remove the identity from it. Let's just have just a key and a private key. Everything's very transactional. The math kind of sorts everything out. And then it's very fair. And it sounds great on paper, but the problem is we're humans and humans are not good at things like keeping private keys. If you look at most of the hacks, uh, 50% of them were a, comp uh, a compromised private key. Now these are corporations, exchanges, distributed finance apps where this happened. And we're gonna start asking individual users, like the user base, the world to start holding private keys to hold their own digital dollars. Like, this is not realistic. Like, digital wallets. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And, and, uh, FedNow from the Central Bank in New York is coming out in June or July. That's going to be an early version of a digital dollar from a central bank. And I don't know. I haven't seen it or heard how they're going to do it. But again, if it goes down to people having to keep private keys, this is just going to be very problematic. A, because we lose them. There's one thing we've learned from cryptocurrencies is there's been a lot of Bitcoin that's lost forever because people had a private key in a computer they threw away and Bitcoin wasn't worth anything. And then all of a sudden it's worth $20,000 and they're jumping into dumpsters trying to find their old hard drives. B, they can be stolen pretty easily because there's no, there's no, I mean, I don't want to say there's no tools, but there's no consumer tools that are really good at keeping your private keys safe and easily accessible to, to, to work with. But it's just not a, in my opinion, it's just not a good way of, of proving identity for your money, your, your wealth, your, your, like all of stuff. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's too clinky. It's too kludgy. And, and it, with a lot of these projects, especially distributed public blockchains, there's no one you can call if you screw it up. You give someone access to your wallet and they take all your money. It's gone. You lose your, 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 your uh, key and your seeds, your uh, whatever. It's gone. Whereas, again, people aren't going to be like this, but a private blockchain is what's going to happen because this is what the government's going to do. And if someone says, hey, I, you know, I lost all my money, 
they can say, well, we're going to burn it and we're going to reissue it because we've got the records of what you had and what you don't have. And then you just have what you have. And that, that kind of loses the kind of essence of what blockchain was supposed to be. But that provides consumers with a level of protection that they actually need. I mean, look at the banking situation. You know, we have to insure a certain amount of money. Banks can fail. If you're telling people to trust their money to a distributed blockchain where there's no one ultimately responsible for it, and they're solely responsible for keeping their identity secure and in a way where they can interact with it. And if they screw it up, they're on their own. Who's going to put their money into that? Exactly. Like right now we have digital currency and digital dollar. It's just called credit cards and credit cards company are accountable for it. Yeah. And, and, and the main reason, and so it's basically the same when you think about that, but the difference with them going to like a blockchain smart contract type of, system is that they can auto have taxes taken out of every transaction so this is this is why it's so attractive to governments you don't even you you won't even need much of the irs anymore because every transaction will automatically have the right amount of taxes taken out you can do stimulus checks where hey for the next two weeks everyone gets 200 bucks but you have two weeks to spend it you can only spend it at grocery stores and it'll just work you can you can kind of set up those parameters and it's the only place you can use it and after the other two weeks it's burned it's gone you can seize people's monies way easier you, it, like the money laundering that we're all worried about right now will be just gone because they'll see every transaction and, and and my concerns around it are the data privacy piece you know if let's say every you know is every is every citizen going to have 100 wallets or they're going to have one or two wallets well if your wallet's public, people query it, then they and they figure out anything about, you know, if, if they if they know you just went and bought a Tesla and then they see the public wallet for Tesla and they see all the wallets that bought Tesla and they know the price of yours, they can figure out your wallet address and they can see everything you bought. OPSEC became becomes so much easier and you don't have to steal laptops and you don't need to be even in the same train to know all your history. California is uh, doing this thing where you can get your, your your marriage certificate, your birth certificate, all these different things via blockchain, so via self-service. Again, you know, they, everyone thinks it's pseudo-anonymous, but the reality is, is that how many people die on any given day? How many people are born on any given day? How many people are married on any given day in California? It's statistically pretty easy to figure out whose wallet is associated with requesting their, their their birth certificate, death certificate, or marriage certificate. And then based on the file size and the metadata, because those wallets are going to be different and the, and the actual file attached to them is going to be different sizes, statistical analysis is going to be able to tell exactly who's who's getting all those things. And so that's the one piece of this blockchain piece that I'm, I'm really concerned about aside from government control is with data analysis, everyone's spending habits will be completely accessible if we're going to continue down this public blockchain idea. And it's not different. It's not very hard right now with uh, large language models to actually pull all these data and say, okay, can you correlate all this stuff for me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it used to be people thought you could take Bitcoin, you send it through a Tumblr, and then you get it out the other side and it's untraceable. But with enough data points and enough compute, you can still figure it out based on the sizes. They can reconstitute, okay, 100 million came in this side and, a, and 101 millions came out the other side. They can still figure out where those are and they can, and then they connect the connection and they, they can still trace it. Brilliant. But uh, we're almost at the end of uh, and the end of our podcast. And, you know, we talked a lot about Doom. Let's uh, include, let's talk about uh, more on the on the positive side, on, on the leap that we've done on digital currency, on, 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 on our whole industry that we got more secure so that attacker 
find hard walls and need to really bridge in. But what will be your message, um, your positive message to close the, the podcast, Chris? Well, I would say to everyone that's you know trying to get into the field or has been in the field for a while, if you don't feel like we've made some ground in the last five years, then you should take a step back and think about some of the problems we had five years ago. Um, we, we have problems still, and there's still breaches, but we're dealing with so many more complex issues now. feel like we're much more prepared than we've ever been. Again, if you just look at the bad news, it's, you know, the ransomware attack every other day, so we get down on ourselves. It's just a matter of time. But we didn't used to have an application for every company five, even five years ago. Now you get a toaster and app with it. There is so much going on right now. There is so much online, so many data, so many apps. And if you took the percentage of things going on, we're doing okay. We're doing okay securing things. And I see maturity and products and programs. I see the community discussing a lot of things online, uh, sharing best practices. And I feel like it's a lot more inclusive and diverse than it's ever been. And that to me, it tells me that we may not ever completely eradicate crime and cybercrime, whatever, but we're coming to the table with a good team and we're, and we're approaching it with a lot of different angles, a lot of different thoughts, a lot of different points of view. And I, I just, I feel good about where we are there compared to even five, 10 years ago. Brilliant. And I think that's a very good positive message to conclude on. Thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. It's been a brilliant conversation. If people want to find more about you, what you do, where you write, where can they find you? So I guess the easiest would be my Twitter, which is uh, Krooster, C-R-O-O-S-T-E-R. And then on there, there's some links to like my GitHub, which is the same thing. I, I, I post some talks and links and things on there. But uh, also hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, you know, people think I'm some sort of like probably, you know, because of my lifting stuff, I'm sort of like mean or, or not approachable. But I'm actually <laughs> nice guy. So if you ask for some advice or some help, I'll usually stop and answer as best I can. So feel free to reach out with anything. Believe me, the lifter are probably the most gentle souls on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. And all the links will be on the show. But Chris, thank you very much for coming on the show. And everybody, please get hold of your wallet. Please take care of your identities. Please don't get crazy on MFA and securing everything. And we hope that this show was useful for you. And you got some positive insight and some good positive news as well that we're getting better every time. Thank you very much, Chris. And everybody, stay safe out there. And thank you very much. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com. 